Hello, and welcome to The Windwire, where industry leaders share the stories of transformative deals that shape their companies and careers. I'm Michael Katz, and we hope these stories will empower you and your teams with inspiration and insights for success, no matter where you are on your journey. Let's get started. Our guest today is Matt Feldman, Vice President of Sales for Tech Media and Telco at Snowflake. I was initially tipped off about Matt by none other than John Sapone, our former guest and SVP of Sales at Snowflake. John spoke of Matt's leap from frontline seller to a top-tier leader in just a few short years. But as I dug a little deeper, it was clear. Matt's reputation at Snowflake is nothing short of legendary. He hopped on board in 2015 when the sales team was just a handful of people. Fast forward, and sources of mine say that some at Snowflake refer to him as the grandfather, thanks to his record-smashing deal volume. Before his Snowflake saga, Matt sharpened his chops selling at places like Exactly and CDW. Today, he'll share insights into his meteoric rise at one of tech's leading companies and talk about a deal store that took a few wild turns. Without further ado, our episode with Matt Feldman. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. You came highly recommended by one of your colleagues who's been on here, John Sapone. So super excited to talk about one of those deals that really impacted your career. But you know, I just wanted to give people some background into your career in general. You know, I think maybe it's best to start even beforehand by just walking you through your pre-2015 career in sales, how you found yourself working on the front lines in general. Yeah. In, in college, I was a finance major uh, going through interviews, you know, coming out of college for finance roles, banking roles, investment roles, et cetera. And I looked across the table and I said, these guys are as boring as it gets. I can't do this. I can't see myself being being those folks that were interviewing me. And I've got a lot of family that's in sales. And I, I said, I think I'm I'm fighting this. I'm fighting nature here. I'm fighting my fate. And so I started looking at sales roles and specifically in technology. Uh, I found, found myself at CDW for a long time. CDW was a phenomenal place to cut my teeth. I learned the ropes, great culture, and I fell in love with tech and got into exactly and found myself here at Snowflake uh, seven and a half years ago. Obviously, Snowflake's a really unique place to have found yourself. And I think you probably stumbled into a unique opportunity there. How did you find yourself there? What were those early days like? And kind of what was that journey at the organization? It, it, it was a blast. Uh, and I found myself, I was at a great company with exactly. I really wanted to see what else was out there. When I came across Snowflake that really fit the bill, I said, if our founders, Benoit and Thierry and, and Marchin, uh, and at the time, our CEO, Bob Muglia, what they told me the company was and where we were going, if it was half a truth, then this was going to be a pretty cool place and it was going to be a lot of fun and the growth and trajectory would be pretty sexy. And so I found myself uh, single, no kids, uh, ready to take a flyer. And it, it was uh, it was the right time. I could bet on myself. And so the early days were a blast. The early days were a lot more simplistic. We were a nice, cute data warehouse. You loaded your data in, you slap uh, something like Tableau on and you ask questions about what happened yesterday. But we were... We were grinders. You look at the sales folks that started back then. We had enough naivety to go out there and think we could conquer the world. And, and no one knew who we were. So we were evangelizing the name Snowflake, uh, which was funny at the time, and talking about the cloud and moving data to the cloud and really taking any and every meeting that we could possibly get our hands on. I, I self-coined the phrase, I was the $5,000 deal king. 
I, I sold a lot of $5,000 deals uh, just to get it in people's hands. And it was embarrassing, but also you got enough of them and you, know, you all of a sudden thought you were pretty damn good at it for, for good or bad. So it was a blast. There are no guidelines. We were really trying to break glass, uh, you know, every day and, and get people to understand who we were, what, what differentiated us from others, you know, as, as organizations matured and, and started moving to the cloud and started creating their own stories. So it was a lot of fun. We had no, uh, no guardrails. We, we had a damn near endless budget that we could play with to entertain and go to Broncos games and, and, and Rockies games here in Colorado. Uh, and we, we had a ton of fun. It was a blast. There's something interesting, of course, about having risen from someone on the front lines to a leader in the same organization. I think a lot of people struggle to make that shift or have that company believe in them. So hard to shed that old reputation of who you were, obviously. How did that kind of transition happen for you throughout your tenure there? What did you do that helped you level up and show that you could cut it at the next level constantly? Honestly, I think it, it was failure. My first year was a grind. I didn't have a lot of folks here in the Rocky Mountains that were moving to the cloud as quickly as, uh, you know, organizations in the Bay Area or Seattle or New York. And so it was a grind. And so how I dealt with that, how I dealt with failure, how I dealt with adversity, I think showed leadership in, in the face of failure, your true colors come out. Uh, and I think they, they saw that early, unfortunately, uh, but it's, it, you know, it, it set up for a successful second year for me. And initially I interviewed for a leadership role and I didn't get it. And fast forward a year, I finally got a leadership role. And I asked my manager at the time, I said, why, why did you finally pick me for that role after passing me up the first go around? And I'll never forget his answer. And he said, it was how you dealt with being rejected. You didn't say anything. You didn't complain. You put your head down and you crushed that year. You made us telling you no, almost impossible. And so I tell that story all the time to folks that want to get into leadership. It's how you handle adversity. It's how you handle being kicked in the teeth. At the time, it's awful. You get rejected. You know, we're salespeople. So naturally we have egos and, and rejection is not something we you know, like to handle uh, or handle very well. And, but to my leadership, I wanted to ensure that they knew that I was here and I was uh, bought in and was going to give them every excuse to say yes to me next time. I think everyone kind of talks about that, which is you graduate from college, there's some job you want and it says you need two years of experience first. And well, how am I supposed to get the two years of experience if not a single company is willing to give me a job first? And that is a problem with sales leadership and management as you know, you're saying I need these skills. How am I supposed to acquire those skills without the actual opportunity? And are there any specific ways that you've found defining those skills of the next level constantly or showing those things even when you're not in that next role? I always tell people the relationships matter. We always talk about building champions within our customer base. Who's talking about you and supporting you on your behalf when you're not in the room? You also have to do that internally within your own org, but you have to do it genuinely. It can't just be for something. It can't just be building relationships to get the promotion. It has to be genuine. If it's not, it'll get flushed out pretty quick. You do that and you put your head down and you grind and you're, you stay unemotional. Then I think you're going to, you find yourself, you know, in, in some positions to take a promotion or get a promotion or earn a promotion um, in the future. Say, so who knows your name outside of your sphere? Who knows who you are outside of your team, outside of your immediate ecosystem? 
we're growing to you know, the level of organization where we have thousands of people globally now. How many people know your name outside of your organization at that ecosystem? It's a question that people start tilting their head. They go, I don't know. Not sure. Well, I think something you should ask yourself and find out. You're going to get flushed out as being political if we're not genuine. Right? First and foremost, you can see somebody trying to climb the political ladder from a mile away. But if you're truly genuine, then it takes on a different, a different meaning. And I think it's incredibly important. Now that we've delved into Matt's background, we'll dive into the deal he's eager to share. And what sets this story apart is that it's not about a win, but instead a memorable loss. While there were key lessons learned, the unexpected twist that followed made the deal truly noteworthy for Matt. Let's hear it from Matt himself. So this was early 2017. I started fall of 2015. 2016, as I talked about, was just a grind. No customers, no name recognition, barely had a working website. Our, our marketing materials were left a lot to be desired. It was very simplistic days, as I said. And so 2016, I didn't see a lot of success. So going into 2017, I'm amped up. All right, this is the year I've got to capitalize. So there's a lot of pressure naturally. And so we had an opportunity uh, that you're referring to with an organization and we started, they started telling us all the things that we wanted to hear and all the, all the buying sign and whatnot. And so I was, I was excited. Now this is, it, it was a, it was a pretty meaty deal at the time. <laughs> Honestly, it was probably 7,500K at the time. That was pretty meaty. That, that was a big deal. And I think in 2016, we did 15 million in revenue or something like that. So I, you know, we were just getting going still. Um, so this was a deal that was, was big and, and carried a lot of weight and had a lot of eyes on it as, as odd as that sounds for being a hundred grand. I wanted to make sure that we did everything by the book. Um, so I was, me and my SC were constantly traveling to this organization, be face to face with them, make sure that we were doing everything we, we could to get it across the line. And it's one that stuck out. Now, like what, how did you come across this? How did you source something that was so big? Did it just fall into your lap? Is this like a Fortune 500 organization that was already switching over to you? You know, what made it unique to you in your experience there? Well, we found it because early days we would target the big hyperscalers. Uh, we would target those that had adopted the cloud uh, with those big hyperscalers. And we knew that they were using competitive solutions. So we knew that the barrier to entry, we're not moving someone from on-prem to the cloud. They're already in the cloud, but we know with those technologies, they felt pain at the time that we could come in and solve. So that's really early days who we targeted. That was the path of least resistance, if you will. We didn't want to fight the religious battle of moving data to the cloud. And uh, you know, we really went and gravitated towards those organizations that had already made that move. Uh, but we knew felt pain with some of those competitors at the time. So that's was this organization. They used a competitor. Uh, they were cloud first. They were growing pretty significantly, pretty quickly. And so the scale was going to continue to grow, which the scale would then be a problem at some point. Uh, we believed we could fix. But after a long deal process, the key moment arrives, pivotal decision-making meeting. These moments are often turning points in any deal, where all the preparation and groundwork converge. You'll see how sometimes, even when everything seems perfectly aligned, there's an unforeseen element that can change the game entirely. I'll never forget sitting in front of the VP of engineering. And we had gone through the POC, 
The testing had been really, really positive. We had all kind of the mid-level managers at checkboxes. They were, they were all in our camp. Again, telling us all the things that we wanted to hear. So we ate it up. We didn't challenge much because they, we, they, it was all positive. Uh, the testing was great. We proved out what we were there to prove. So I'll never forget sitting down in front of the VP, wanting executive alignment, ensuring that we got his buy-in. And he used these exact words. You're faster than your competition. You're easier to use than your competition. And you're cheaper than your competition. At that point, that those were like the three things. Faster, easier, cheaper. If we got that, we nailed it. That was that was here's an order form, go ahead and sign it. Like we'll go back and we'll process it. We're good. He told me those things, but you could tell that there was a but coming. I said, but what? He said, we're going and staying with your competitor. I said, hold on, I'm so confused. Your managers want it. You just told me that we're faster, easier, cheaper to use, but yet you're not buying us. How is that possible? It, I was perplexed. And he said, the thing that you missed were the analysts. The guy in the corner with the red stapler, he doesn't want to change tools. He wants to stick with what he's familiar with. I said, the value that we're providing and faster, cheaper, easier, shouldn't that trump what an analyst wants to use? He said, I have a hundred analysts. I'm not going to disrupt their day to day. I'm not going to have a hundred people be disgruntled with me. I'm okay having something be slower, harder to use, more expensive, but keep them happy. Uh, and that's just, that's where my decision is. I walked away from that one, so mad, so confused. My leadership's going, okay, so we're faster, easier, cheaper. How did you lose again? I'm going, I don't know. I hadn't, I didn't know how to explain it. And the lesson that will always stick with me is don't forget anyone in the sales cycle. You may have executive alignment. Great. You may have the middle manager tier. Great. Do you have the, the folks that are actually doing the work that are actually going to be day in, day out interacting with your software, your tool, your technology, whatever it may be? And it was crushing. I was flying high going in that meeting thinking, we nailed this. We just got to talk about commercials. Everything else is great. And that's what I told my leadership, of course, at the time, only to fall flat on my face. But this deal didn't just stick out in Matt's mind because of what he learned. Um, another reason that this sticks out is just a month or two later, there's a blessing in disguise that we lost it. A month or two later, that organization was raided by the FBI for fraud. I got a newspaper article you know, showing like so-and-so a company shut down in ra after you know FBI raids their headquarters. And I was like, oh my God, thank God that I didn't win that deal. I don't know if I've ever said it before then or after then. Like, thank God I didn't win that deal because it went sideways real quick. <laughs> so I guess it's a blessing in disguise, but it's something that just will always will always stick with me you know, over the last several years. And it's funny because right on one hand, obviously, you know, you're glad at the end of the day it didn't work out and you know, everything netted out as it should. But at the same time, there was obviously lessons to be learned in terms of how to go create consensus and talk to people. I guess I'm curious. You know, most people are always talking about how do you prioritize and how do you move up the organization and how do you get to the business level pain and screw the analysts. 
And, you know, I understand that approach and it's hard when people have limited time to really reach those people. How do you think about that sort of balance today, especially when you're coaching folks and then getting them to do that of treating those different parties? It's a great question and something that we often talk about internally. We grew up as technical sellers. We grew up as winning technically, again, faster, easier, cheaper, more scalable, more flexible, et cetera. And then we see a shift of, we got to get to the business, got to get to the end user, got to get to use cases and business value and business drivers, business outcome. So we almost overcorrect in a way, and we left the tech behind. We've got to remember that, build on top of it to get to the business. We need to get to the business and build on that to ensure that we can also win on technical merit. It's something that us as leaders need to think about and need to think about how we push out different initiatives, how we push out different requirements within within our sellers. And we can't overlook it. We can't just overcorrect to the business. So it's a great point. And it's hard. I'd say there's people who listen to this, talk to folks who aren't in tech, right? They sell other things, clearly you were in hardware before, a totally different type of situation. Once you get up to that C-suite person, you're kind of like, I don't want to go back and talk to the lowly, the lowly analysts anymore, right? It could jeopardize my deal if yeah. I show them to small time. Yeah. Um, but I, if you think about it in a different way that you flip that coin on its head and that could actually increase the size of your deal. You can't think about it as ruining your deal. You got to think about it as potentially increasing the size of your deal, increasing the value of your deal, because you're actually tying value to a technical requirement. So they go hand in hand. It's just people sometimes, because they hear it from the organization, they got to sell to the business. They go, oh, we'll throw away the technical requirements. We'll just talk about vision and we'll talk about the future and where what you can do better, faster, et cetera, with our technology. If you forget the technical requirement, you may be losing out on usage licenses, a larger contract value overall. You've got to tie it back to technical requirement. You got to tie technical requirement to business value. Should theoretically, uh, in an ideal world, increase the size of the deal and make you more valuable to the customer. If you were to go back and take that feedback around how to convince those people on the ground that they should change their lives and they should switch to you. you know, on a really tactical level with you and your SE, what would you have actually done differently? How would you have actually approached those people? How would you talk to them? It's understanding what's important to every level of the organization. There's different business units, whether it's an analyst or a manager or a VP, figuring out what's important and who's going to be touching it. Who cares about it? Why do they care about it? What are they going to do with it? What value do they see out of it? If we give you a new tool, what do you, what do you think about that? What's your initial reaction? How do you feel? Not just, oh, we can be faster, cheaper, easier. Mm -hmm. That's great. But why does that matter to that specific individual? Why does that matter to their team? Why does it matter to the organization? Again, tying the business value back to technical requirements, as we talked about, mm -hmm. that's the glue. And how does it influence those people that are actually going to be using it? consuming it, uh, utilizing it, et cetera. That's it. Would you have gone, would you have flown out there and tried to you know, walk around the office and talk to these people on site, do you think? Or just try to cold reach out to all these people who, you know, might or might not be relevant? We would have done a mock training, right? And so we would have gotten those 
brought in pizza and beer, brought those people into a room for a couple of hours and said, here's how you use our technology. What do you think? How do you feel about it? What do you like about the technology that you use now? What do you not like about the technology that you use now? Again, it's getting that consensus that you talked about before, but with everyone. We, we try to get to leadership. We try to get to the influencers. We try to get to the buyers, the budget owners, et cetera, which is great. You have to do. You can't forget about the doers. And we forgot about the doers, people that are actually going to be interacting with it on a daily basis to figure out what was important to them and why do they care. And we forgot. We didn't do it uh, at the end of the day. We got to the execs. We got to the leaders. We got their buy-in. Awesome. We didn't get to the doers. Yeah. And it's actually a funny thing now that you say that because I think one thing we're starting to hear a lot right now in 2023 is you know, we forgot about the value of in-person. I think the value of in-person comment is usually geared to, well, maybe you'll get a meeting with someone else high up that you would have never got otherwise gotten or shaking someone's hand. I think what's probably not talked about, and it's an interesting thing that you bring up is, yeah, it also gives you the opportunity to talk to the doers. And maybe you can do something in person and bring them food or whatever it is, or get them to go out of their daily schedule, especially technical folks, and say, just spend a little bit of time with us and give us some honest feedback that you're probably going to ignore if I emailed you. Yeah. Um, I'm pushing my team to get in front of as many people as they possibly can. In front of them face-to-face in person. We get, we're so used to Zoom. We're so used to doing this remotely now. No one wants to get out of their comfort zone anymore. And I'm, we have to remember what we did in the past and how that created those genuine relationships. Just a story the other day with one of our technical leaders, he went and took a technical leader and one of our customers out to lunch before they even started talking about anything. The customer said, one of my, one of my dreams is to fly. And, and the, the guy on our side, uh, said, you know, that's what I do. I fly. That That's my passion is flying. He goes, do you want to go flying sometime? And the guy just lit up and said, absolutely. They're going flying in two weeks. And, and this is a guy that we've really tried to fight for you know, hearts and minds and tried to get him into our camp. And it's been an uphill battle. That just five minute inter- interaction over a face-to-face lunch would have never happened over Zoom. You'd be looking at the clock, basically, for when is this meeting about to end and how can I get out of this thing? That's it. Yeah. Get, get my five minutes. Exactly. Yeah. Th- those types of stories, I'm just flooding to people to ensure that they are doing what we used to do. And that was build relationships. You know, people buy from people, the age old phrase. Uh, and we, we can't lose sight of that. As I spoke with Matt, it became evident that he had a unique perspective grounded in frontline experience, yet elevated to a level of broad insight. And with a lot of turmoil in his industry, I wanted to understand where he felt people were misguided and how he thought about focusing his people. I think it's falling into the pressure. We have high pressure jobs, right? Any sales job is a high pressure job. When you get paid commissions and that's your livelihood, you have to sell something in order to get paid, right? So naturally it's going to come with a heightened level of uh, anxiety and pressure if you're human. And so I, I think people, I often equate it to sports. If if you played sports growing up, you play sports now, whenever you get nervous, whenever you get anxious, whenever you feel pressure, you start tensing up and you start doing unnatural things. You start talking faster. You start 
gripping the pen a little harder. You start having a sharper tone to your voice. You have to relax. You have to think big picture. You have to support your team, no matter who that is. If you're a leader or a seller, you have to support your ecosystem and know that everyone is working for a collective goal and has each other's back. But when you throw pressure into the mix, you just start doing unnatural things and you get tense. So you can figure out a way to relax, work with your team, be collaborative, understand that you have a solid strategy. Now you just need to go execute against it. You're going to be in a much better place. And with the market conditions that we're seeing, it gives us that much more excuse to amp up the pressure and feel that anxiety because we've got to close deals because buyers are pulling back. And it gives you an opportunity to either rise to the occasion or succumb to that pressure and succumb to that anxiety. And doing unnatural things just isn't going to bring good outcomes at the end of the day. So I think people, if they can think about that and internalize that, we'll get through it. We'll get through tough economic times and the cream will rise to the top at the end of the day. Or not, and you're going to have a really hard time in an already high pressure job and career. It's going to be difficult. So having a different mindset, I think will pay dividends, not just now in the future as well. And it's an interesting observation, of course, just because I think there's so many tactical things that people are encouraged to do right now. And it can be a little overwhelming, I think. And right, it's like almost like that's getting, I think to your point, ratcheted up where, well, of course you're not doing well because you didn't do this. You didn't do that. And I think something that what I like about what you're saying is, Thinking a little more holistically, a little bit more long-term thinking might actually be a benefit in the short term. And it's a hundred percent. It's easy to fall into something I fight every day. I, I push tactical things on my team all the time and I've got to pull myself back. We have to have real conversations. You have to, as I said before, build genuine relationships, right? So people know that they're, that you're in the boat with them. So if you do those, things and have those conversations and, and be a real person in tough situations, you're going to see positive things come out of it. Uh, there's just no no other option. But again, you have to be genuine about it. You, The tactics will be there. We'll, we'll always ask our teams to do those types of tactical plays. But if you can pull yourself out and, and pull the teams out and look at it holistically you know, every once in a while, you'll be in a better spot for it. I guess just as a last question here. And we love to give the opportunity for folks to talk about who they've been mentored by or who they've learned a lot from. And so I guess curiosity, who are one or two leaders or peers that have had the most impact on you throughout your career? Why? What have they taught you? Yeah. I'll, you talked about John Sapone before, and I'll say John Sapone. Something that I've had to work through as a leader and something I often talk to first-time leaders about is emotions and keeping your emotions in check. It's really, really easy to get emotional in this job, whether you're an IC, whether you're a leader, uh, first line, second line, third line. It's an easy uh, career to get emotional with. Like, it, what I talked about before, because we have high pressure jobs, we work in, you know, on commissions, uh, and when you're talking about people's money, uh, it's emotional. And I think he's the one that 
really taught me and continues to hold me accountable in keeping my emotions in check. And it's whether you're talking about deals or compensation or quota or carving out territories, right? It, you have every excuse in the world to be emotional. If you can keep your emotions in check, you're going to be that much further ahead than your peer that are emotional. And it plays in every aspect of the job. As I talked about it, it plays in front of customers in negotiation. When you're talking to someone in procurement about a really large deal, you need to get that deal. You want to get that deal. And it's easy to fall into that emotional trap. And I often tell the team, the first one to get emotional loses in a negotiation. And so if you can keep your emotions in check, you're going to you're going to be that much further ahead than your peers or 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 your competitors you know, in a situation and john has really hammered that into my head and, and really held me accountable to do it you talk to john and you say hey john i just won a million dollar deal he goes great you go, hey john i just lost a million dollar deal he goes okay and he is he's as unemotional as it gets in, in those types of scenarios which gives me confidence to to come to him with bad news, with good news, and I know what I'm going to get. And so I try to emulate that with my team. If they bring me bad news, that's fantastic. They bring me good news, that's fantastic. You, you try to stay as even keel as possible. And it's, I think, going to do everyone around you. It's going to give them a level of confidence to come to you with those types of things together, whether it's good or bad. You'll certainly hear the information faster. If yeah. I know they can yeah. tell you anything. So, <laughs> as long as you can fake being evenly even killed, <laughs> and that's uh, that's key. I'm sure. He's, uh, yeah, I'm sure he's ticked in the background, but at least uh, to me, he's fine. I mean, he's happy. It wasn't mad at all. Um, thanks so much for for sharing your time and sharing your stories, Matt. This is awesome. Absolutely, Michael. Really great talking to you. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks as always for joining us on another episode of the Windwire. We'd appreciate it if you could share it on LinkedIn, Twitter, and rate us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Helps others discover the show and join our growing community. Our contact info is in the show notes, including our show email, winwirepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to get your feedback and requests. You can see all episodes at thewinwire.com and then your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Michael Katz, and this is The Winwire.